Good morning. Let's pray before I begin. Heavenly Father, speak to us now. Help us to see and submit to Jesus as Lord. Amen. I don't believe in God, but I love the church. I sing hymns and delight in the Testaments, old and new. Say my prayers every night, not because anyone's listening, but because I always have. Cathedrals fill me with wonder, graveyards with reverence. And it goes deeper. I love both the story and the person of Jesus. And I'm convinced he was a real and wonderful man, albeit under a serious misapprehension about paternity. Permit me talking about myself, but there are millions like me. This is the Church of England we want to be part of. As with the crown, if you've watched that, we don't really care how much of it is true. It's Matthew Paris writing the Times yesterday. Do you relate to that? Subtle, isn't it? Religion of God but not relationship with God. Like a Madame Tussauds waxwork, it looks so alive, but is dead on the inside. Well, we're finishing off our Good News series in Luke's Gospel, and we've recently seen how Jesus sets people free from spiritual darkness and brings true freedom. And last week we saw that that Jesus alone can make us spiritually clean and therefore acceptable in God's sight. And today we're going to see that Jesus is Lord, with all that that means. Now there's a lot in this passage, there's more really than we have time for today. So instead of looking in detail at each element, I want to trace two themes throughout the passage that I think help unlock its meaning for us. But before we get into that, let me just give you a a little story to illustrate things. Just imagine, if you will, someone who is suffering with a medical condition. They've been trying to heal themselves by taking a medicine that they made at home. However, the doctors told them that their medicine will not work, and they must take the new prescribed medicine. And the doctor also emphasizes that the new medicine he's prescribing will not be effective if they continue to take their own old medicine. Well, stubbornly, the person continues to take both, believing that the old medicine won't affect the new. But then that stubbornness is their downfall. They couldn't take both the old and the new medicine. They should have listened to the doctor. Now, I tell that story to help us try and grasp the theme of this passage that runs through. You see, Jesus is Lord. He alone is the medicine that can heal our eternal soul. He alone brings in the new kingdom, the new covenant, the new testament, the new wine. Jesus is Lord and his throne cannot be shared with another. But he faces a battle, a battle with man-made religion. Now the word religion comes from Latin, the words religare and religio, for those who did Latin at school. And it basically means to be bound by obligation. And that's the heart of the struggle here. Jesus is is bringing freedom and cleansing as Lord, 
And yet there's a religion being clung to, a religion that prizes the bind of obligation in the place of Jesus. And that struggle is represented for us here in our passage between Jesus and the Pharisees. But the essence of that struggle still persists for many today. Matthew Paris is not alone. Love and zeal even for religion, but not for Jesus. Well, two short points this morning. Firstly, Jesus as Lord displaces religion. If you're making any notes, that's the first point. Jesus as Lord displaces religion. And Jesus uses three incidents as springboards to show us this in our passage. Firstly, we see the incident concerning fasting, biblically defined. That's the individual discipline of abstaining from food. Then the second one is concerning the Sabbath law, a a corporate discipline of the Jewish people. And thirdly, the Sabbath healing of a man with a shriveled hand. And the key to unlocking this passage will actually be to not focus on the springboards. That is, Jesus does not want us to focus on a theology of fasting or the Sabbath or healing. Those issues are important, but they're not Luke's focus here. Luke's using them as vehicles to deliver us something deeper. Now, the law in Leviticus from the Old Testament, it taught that fasting was only obligatory once a year on the Day of Atonement. But over time, the religious leaders, the Pharisees that is, they'd begun to build up this portfolio of rules concerning all sorts of things. It was such now that they were teaching that people should fast twice a week. And it's incredible, isn't it, how quickly religion, when left to man, it goes over the top, out of control in all its outward forms and observances. Well, as we've been going through, Luke, we've been shown lots of ways in which Jesus has authority and indeed authority over forgiveness of sins. And these are all pointers to his identity, that he is indeed God himself come in human form. And so Jesus, God himself, challenges the Pharisees over that idea of fasting. And he does so in a very deliberately provocative way. We've seen, as we've gone through Luke, this growing intensification of the religious leaders towards Jesus. We see in chapter 4, he's rejected in Nazareth. Earlier in this chapter 5, he's branded blasphemous for forgiving sins. And now here in our passage, he's criticised for eating with tax collectors and sinners. And what's clear is that the Pharisees were, were no doubt shocked by Jesus' response to their traditions. And for religious folk, it, it can often feel like an actual law's been broken when a tradition is not kept. But Jesus here is being quite deliberate in not trying to fit in. He's being radical, even provocative, doing what tradition says he shouldn't and not doing what it said he should. Get used to difference, as the Chosen series has him saying. And the Pharisees ask, how is it that Jesus' disciples are not fasting when there are those who are? And this is because some had formed a religious group that followed John, even though John hadn't actually taught about fasting in that way. And Jesus' answer is provocative because it's designed to challenge what's behind the Pharisees' traditions concerning fasting. 
Now, Jewish weddings were, week, were joyful, week-long affairs where there was ample food and drink flowing, and it would have therefore been appropriate to be fasting at a wedding. And Jesus is saying here that being with him is like being at such a wedding feast, because he is the true bridegroom. He is Lord. It's a picture that's used of God's relationship with his people in the Old Testament, that of God bringing the bridegroom and his people the bride. You can see that in Isaiah 54 or Jeremiah 31, for example. And Jesus is saying that he is that bridegroom, and therefore he is Lord. It's another claim to his divinity from Luke's gospel, although it's a more subtle one. And so it follows that if God is with the disciples, it's like being with the bridegroom at a joyful wedding feast, and therefore fasting is out of the question. It's a, a wonderful picture of God's relationship with his people. Now, Jesus is not trying to say that because he is the bridegroom, the Old Testament law should be rejected. No, because we see just a few verses before, in chapter 5, verse 14, he commands the man healed by him of leprosy to offer the sacrifice Moses commanded for cleansing. But what Jesus is saying here is this. The new age he is bringing in is not compatible with the old. The old, traditional, external displays of religion. And that this new age will be fully ushered in through Jesus' death on the cross. We know that. We live this side of it. And Jesus hints at that in verse 35 when he talks of the time when he will be taken away. Now some have thought that given Jesus is ascended and no longer with us, that we should now fast all the time and, and function like aesthetics. But that idea is thrown to the wind by two clever one-line parables Jesus tells, which brilliantly illustrate how the new age he is bringing in, contained in the message of the gospel, is incompatible with religion and displaces it. A patch of unshrunk cloth will rip and destroy an old garment if it is sewn to it. And old wineskins, which have, which have gone hard and brittle, they'll crack and burst if new fermenting wine is poured into them. They will literally be unable to contain it. And Jesus is making clear here that there's a radical incompatibility between religious formalism and the new life he's bringing in the gospel. His coming changes everything because everything's now changed and must be seen through that new lens. You see, the message of new life through the gospel that Jesus brings, it, it destroys religiousness and formal outward observance. Those two are incompatible. And so Jesus can't just be an addition to our religiousness because it can't contain him. The old wineskin must be thrown out if we're ever to receive the new wine that's poured out through the new life Jesus brings. Have you thrown your old wineskin away? Thrown away your determination or desire to be outwardly religious? Or are you holding on to that brittle, cracking wineskin? You see, like new wine and old wineskins, Jesus and former religion, they're incompatible. And so to accept Jesus fully as Lord, we, we need to allow him to reorder our hearts and minds from being fundamentally religious people to being Jesus people 
to being about him. You see, formal religion like old wineskins will be displaced, bursted, destroyed by the new life he brings. We must drink Jesus' new wine. And those of us who have, and there's the promise that those who will will see how much better it is. As Daryl Bock, the theologian, writes, there can be no syncretism between what Jesus brings and the old tradition. If it were tried, both would be destroyed. Jesus brings a new era and a fresh approach to God that cannot be mixed with the old. The gospel is a new way, and the old practices cannot contain it. We must put on the new garment and do away with the old forever. Jesus as Lord displaces religion. But secondly, religion displaces Jesus as Lord. In the second section of our passage today, we're, we're taken to the scene of some cornfields. And there the disciples are walking along and they begin to pick some of the grains to eat. But once again, the Pharisees there are ready to pounce this time, accusing Jesus of allowing his disciples to break the Sabbath law. And Jesus' response is again provocative. And what Jesus does is accuse the Pharisees, these religious scholars who are meant to know everything, of actually just not knowing their Bibles. And that would have been an insult. Have you never read, he says in verse 3, and he refers there back to an Old Testament incident from 1 Samuel 21. And in that passage, if you've read it, you'll see David, along with his fighting men, have become outlaws of King Saul. King Saul was trying to kill David because of the threat he posed to the throne. And David and his men, starving from hiding away from King Saul in the desert, they come upon the temple in desperate search for food. And inside the temple, there David finds the consecrated bread that was placed on the altar each Sabbath and reserved exclusively for the priests. But upon finding it, he eats it and gives away some of it to his companions. Now, why does Jesus refer to that Old Testament passage here? Well, he does so because he wants to expose the foolishness, the misguided understanding the Pharisees have in their religious thinking. Jesus correctly interprets for these scholars the law of the Old Testament. He helps them to understand its real intended purpose. He shows them the spirit of the law over the letter. And you see, it's it's very clever because nowhere in the Old Testament is David ever condemned for having eaten the consecrated bread at that time. So if the religious leaders want to condemn Jesus here, they'd better be ready to condemn David and reject the testimony of Scripture. And the incident Jesus refers to, it sets the precedent that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That is to say, the purpose of the Sabbath is is for our benefit. It's not for slavish obedience. Because God's heart declares that human need is of greatest importance. And the whole essential purpose of the Sabbath, designed by God, given, if you like, as a gift, was to give mankind a day of rest from work, to meet that need for rest. And what Jesus is highlighting is that the rigidity of the Pharisees It's showing 
that they don't really understand their Bibles. Because they're showing that their attitude towards the disciples picking corn, it exposes they haven't really grasped the essence of what the Sabbath is all about. And and we see the same thing coming through a bit later in our passage in verse 9, as Jesus says on another Sabbath, after healing a man's withered hand, I ask you, what's lawful on the Sabbath to do good or, or evil, to save life or destroy it? And the point is that religion can have such a warped understanding of God and his ways that it would sooner have seen David starve than have him eat the consecrated bread. Sooner seen the disciples go hungry than eat some corn grains. Sooner see a man remain disabled than be healed. Sooner see death than life. And Jesus is saying that religion of this kind, which puts all its emphasis on outward observance to rules at the cost of human need and the gospel, it inwardly kills off the new life that Jesus brings. Just think of the Reformation. There we saw the desire for religion and structures to be maintained was so great that it tried to snuff out that flame. The very word of life the reformers were bringing and preaching was fought heavily against by religious people who would not have that life, but they would have their religion. Men would burn, hang and be beheaded, all so that some might maintain their religion. They didn't want people bringing Jesus to them or to anyone else. They would rather have religion as Lord than Jesus as Lord. And religion like that, it displaces Jesus, displaces him as Lord. But we can take heart because as we receive him in, Jesus as Lord has the power to displace religion and give us new life in Christ to make us spiritually alive. Well, as we close, let me read some words from Isaiah 58. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed, God? God, I've observed my faith religiously. What's wrong? God responds. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? God continues, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every chain? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor and wanderer with shelter? When you see them naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Can you see what God's saying there in Isaiah? He said, not interested 
I'm not interested in your formal religious observance. It means nothing to me. This is the kind of fasting I've chosen. Wholehearted living that offers all of oneself in loving me and loving others. And what then? Well, the passage goes on, verse 8. Then, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. And your righteousness will go before you. And the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry out for help and he will say, here I am. So may we abandon ourselves and turn to the Son of Man for new life. May we come to the bridegroom where the joy of new wine is found and found to be so much better than the old. And may we come to the one who is Lord, even of the Sabbath, because as God, Jesus has all authority and the whole law submits to him. In our series, Luke has wonderfully shown us Jesus. And Jesus brings only good news for those who follow him as Lord and Saviour. Amen.